everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast one man's musings on the works of Stephen King each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week I'm turning my attention to a novel that I feel is a precursor to the Stephen King's uh, current phase in which he places the emphasis not on the fright but on deeper musings on the machinery of life what I believe is his existential period such novels include Duma Key, Lisi's Story, and most recently Revival, but I believe that this thread began with 1998's publication of the haunting ghost story Bag of Bones. Bag of Bones was coming hot on the heels of some larger-than-life concepts that had begun with Insomnia, and then followed up with Rose Matter, The Green Mile, Desperation, The Regulators, and Wizarding Glass. Auras, Little Doctors, Flying Rocking Chairs, Spider Women in Paintings, Talking Bulls, Circus Mice, Cartoons Coming to Life, Possessing Spirits, The Recreation of Emerald City. These are just a few of the ideas that populated these novels. So when Bag of Bones came out, I expected similarly charged concepts. And I did not get that with Bag of Bones. Whereas in the previous novels, he went big. Here he goes small. This is a very introspective novel that doesn't place the focus on the supernatural, but on the natural. In this case, the loss of a loved one, and the attempt to pick up the pieces of your life once that person has moved on. Yeah, there's a ghost story, but the ghost story takes second place to the story of a man trying to live his life. In many ways, this feels like the companion piece to Lisi's story. Here we have the death of a writer who loses his wife, and in Lisi's story, it's the tale of a wife mourning the death of her writer husband. Both stories take place, um, sorry, both stories place the grieving process above the supernatural, and both are intimate examinations on the impact of the death of a loved one. Both stories are rooted in the truth of the author's life. For instance, in Bag of Bones, Mike states that he and his wife Joe had as English majors had met while as English majors in college, something that King must have drawn from from his relationship with Tabby. Ultimately, I would say that this is Stephen King's most personal work to date. It's as if he took the character work that he'd done so far and stripped away all of the supernatural plot points so that it really becomes what it is billed as, a haunting love story. So, I mean, the first hundred pages alone, it's just a well-written masterclass of tone through character. Not much happens, and that's not a complaint. There are many Stephen King stories where the plot propels the characters almost faster than you can keep up with the page. So in these cases, you have to slow your reading. And that's not the case here with Bag of Bones. It's a ponderous, quiet look at grief. A book whose main character at times is not just the only character, but seems like the only person in the world. Rather than the suspense that's found in previous novels, here you get a well-written descriptive look at a haunted man trying to move on with his life. 
The descriptions in this novel, descriptions of Sarah laughs, descriptions of the lake, descriptions of his mood, descriptions of a diner, descriptions of a feeling, sensation, or thought combined with his capturing of universal truths, both large and small, take the place of the large supernatural forces that have terrified readers throughout the years. I could have incorporated and raved about a textual excerpt on every page, so rather than doing that, I'll upfront just say that this book is worth reading and worth reading slowly. Now I'm going to be honest here about this review. I feel guilty about Bag of Bones. If I was a better reviewer, I would have taken at least two weeks to read it. I would have had uh, I would have read Rebecca beforehand, so I had a familiarity with the inspiration for this novel. I felt that if I spent longer with this novel, I could have produced a much more in-depth review. Now, don't get me wrong, you're going to get a good review out of this, but I feel as though I didn't dive in as deeply as I could have. And the reason I say this is because I feel as though there are aspects and qualities to the novel that I might have missed. So, I'm going to need to lean on your help to get us through together. If there's anything that you want to share about Bag of Bones, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And on that note, I would like to share a listener email from Andrew. Andrew writes, Hi there. I recently reread It and just finished listening to your three-part analysis of the book. I really enjoyed it. Really great listen to an in-depth and often personal analysis of a great book and also alerted to all the little things in the book that I didn't catch. I read all of his books in my youth, and after rereading it, I plan to jump into some more of them, after which I'll definitely keep listening to your corresponding podcasts. I wanted to share something I noticed while rereading it this time around. On page 961 of my edition, when the losers as adults are traveling back to the Barrens, the narrator says, As he got to his feet again, he realized that his face and arms and hands had been stripped by blackberry thorns in two dozen places. Ben then says out loud, make that three dozen. Eddie then asks him what he said, and Ben replies, nothing. It seemed odd to me that the narrator says something, and then Ben responds directly to the narrator out loud, like he could hear him or her narrating. I was ready to shrug it off, um, but then when Eddie asks him what he said, and he responds, nothing, it feels like King is drawing attention to it. From what I could find, it was the only instance of a character being able to hear the narrator in the book, and it never comes up again. The narration is told in the third person. As you pointed out, the narrator is often able to put things into words that the characters are not, so it's not like the narration that takes place before Ben corrects it is just his own internal monologue. At the very least, the exchange itself does not matter at all. Who cares how many dozens of places he was struck by blackberry thorns? So the exchange must have more significance in my opinion. Anyway, just wanted to get your opinion and see if you ever noticed that. Otherwise, please keep up the great podcast. Sincerely, Andrew. Andrew? Great observation. And I wish I had some insight, but I don't know what to make of that. Um, That is very, very interesting. I don't know if that's just an example of the author kind of uh, losing a little bit of control of his narrative. Um, Or if there really is, is something something to that uh that is that that's i ever since i got your email i've been really thinking about it and i can't really come up with anything um 
so anybody so going back to the the audience out there if anybody has any thought on what that might mean please write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com so i can share your answers because i'm kind of stumped on this one it's a great question it's a great observation andrew and i'm looking forward to to any sort of hypothesis on why exactly we have characters responding to the the um the narration so thanks again. That's that's great. So at this point, guys, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary of Bag of Bones so that I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. The narrator Mike Noonan, a best-selling novelist, suff suffers severe writer's block after his pregnant wife Joe suddenly dies in an accident. Four years later, Mike, still grieving, is plagued by nightmares set at his summer house in TR-90, an unincorporated town named for its map coordinates, Maine. He decides to confront his fears and moves to his vacation house on Dark Score Lake known as Sarah Laughs. On his first day, he meets Kyra, a three-year-old girl and her young widowed mother, 21-year-old Maddie DeVore. Maddie's father-in-law is Max DeVore, an elderly rich man who will do anything to gain custody of his granddaughter Kyra. Drawn to Kyra and Maddie, Mike hires John Starrow, a custody lawyer for Maddie, and things start looking up. Mike begins to write again, and realizes that Joe's ghost is helping him to solve the mystery of Sarah Tidwell, a blues singer whose ghost haunts the house. He also learns that Joe frequently returned to the town in the year before her death without telling him. Mike begins having recurring, disturbing dreams and visions, and realizes he shares a psychic connection with Kyra. Max and his personal assistant, Rajet, try to drown Mike, but he survives with the help of his wife's spirit. Max unexpectedly commits suicide that same night. He sees a pattern when he sees that the local inhabitants have the names that begin uh, K or C and learns how relatives of townspeople have drowned in childhood. While Storo and the private detective he hired are celebrating the end of the custody battle, Maddie attempts to seduce Mike. As they are embracing, Maddie's trailer is subjected to a drive-by shooting, injuring Storo and killing uh, and the detective and killing Maddie. The detective is able to kill the driver and incapacitate the shooter with Mike's help. Mike then grabs Kyra and drives back to his home. The shooter's buddies try to stop them, but refuse to follow him to Sarah Laughs. Under the influence of Sarah's ghost, Mike is tormented to drown Kyra and commit suicide himself. Joe's ghost prevents him and calls his attention to the novel he has begun to write. In the pages, there are clues that lead Mike to discover documents Joe had hidden, among them a genealogy showing Mike's blood relationship to one of the town's families. Several families whose origin lay within the town had a firstborn children with the K names who were all murdered. Kyra, as a descendant of Max DeVore, is scheduled to be the next to die. The genealogy also shows that Mike and Joe's child would have been the next firstborn child with a K name in the family line. Mike realizes this must be Sarah Tidwell's curse for something that had been done to her. He leaves and searches for Sarah's grave, stopped by the ghosts of several members of the old families. He learns in a vision that these men had viciously raped and killed Sarah and drowned her son Keto in the lake. All the K children who died were descendants of those men. Mike reaches Sarah's grave and succeeds in destroying her bones, ending the curse. Upon returning to the house, Mike discovers that Rajet has kidnapped Kyra. He follows them to the lake where Maddie's ghost appears and knocks Rajet into the water. Rajet tries to pull Mike in with her but is impaled by wreckage from the dock. Maddie's ghost says her goodbyes to Mike and Kyra. 
The novel ends with an epilogue revealing that Mike has retired from writing as an attempting to adopt Kyra. His status as a single, unrelated male complicates things, and the adoption has taken longer than anticipated. The outcome of the adoption is left unresolved at the end, but the reader is given hope that it will be positive. So here we go, guys. Here's my analysis. Right away, if you're a fan of Dairy Maine, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to enjoy this novel. I'll talk about it more during the Easter eggs part of the podcast, but to start off, it's good to know that we're back in Derry, the setting for It and Insomnia. As the novel begins, it feels like the spiritual successor to the previous Derry tale, 1994's Insomnia, so it comes no surprise when Ralph Roberts shows up to guide our main character through his grieving process. Both novels are linked not only through setting, but through main characters who begin their stories through the death of their wives. Like Insomnia, it also begins with a car crash. It's an incredibly personal and depressing beginning. But King knows how to thread in the little mysteries, in this case, what was in Joe's purse, and this other life that she was living. The other life, it turns out, is very literal. She was pregnant. Double ouch. Mike discusses the matter with Joe's brother Frank, and during the conversation, Mike reveals that Joe was about seven weeks pregnant and the baby was a girl. Now at seven weeks, the fetus is no bigger than a raspberry and hasn't really formed into anything yet, so knowing the sex is still some time away. For a novel that's inspired by the early 20th century novel Rebecca, it should come as no surprise that this era of literature is going to manifest itself into the narrative. First, when Mike finally acknowledges that his wife is dead by remembering an academic conversation about a 20th century British writer. It's authentic for anyone that ever had any dealing with literary analysis, but man, does it seem so stuffy. Still, the fact that it hits him so unexpectedly out of the blue is something that feels accurate. The novel might have begun about the death of Mike's wife, but it's clear that King has much to say about writing as he does about death. Um, in fact, actually more to say about writing. So the dozens of pages that follow, he makes the effort to show how much of Joe was a part of Mike's writing process, to show us the devastation when he suffers writer's block. It's all well written, but as I've stated before about writers and writing about writing, it might be insightful, but it's not exactly thrilling. That isn't to say this novel is supposed to be thrilling, by the way. It's ponderous, and it's supposed to be ponderous. It's skillfully ponderous, an example of the author's intent fully realized. It's a great window into the mind of a writer, but anyone that's looking for a thrilling ride, you're going to need to look elsewhere. Now, I'm going to get to the writer as protagonist of King's writing later on, <clears throat> but for now, I'll say this. While King has written about writers before, this one explores the business and the machine of the writer as a profession in a way that he hasn't explored before. Here we sense, you know, here we get a sense of the business with nods to Tom Clancy and Dean Koontz and Mary Higgins Clark and others. <clears throat> and throughout the first couple dozen pages or so, Mike has referenced the cabin Sarah Laps on Dark Score Lake, and while I could have read an excerpt from any of the pages throughout the novel so far to demonstrate King's poignancy, I'm going to read an excerpt that describes the lake house, detailed perfectly. The lane is a two-mile loop through the woods with ends opening onto Route 68, has a number 
It has a number at either end, lane 42 if it matters, in case you have to call in a fire, but no name. Nor did Joe and I ever give it one, not even between ourselves. It is narrow, really just a double rut with Timothy and witch grass growing on the crown. When you drive in, you can hear that grass whispering like low voices against the undercarriage of your car or truck. I don't drive in the dreams, though. I never drive. In those dreams, I walk. The trees huddle in close on either side of the lane. The darkening sky overhead is a little more than a slot. Soon I will be able to see the first peeping stars. Sunset is past. Crickets chirr. Loons cry on the lake. Small things, chipmunks probably, or the occasional squirrel, rustle in the woods. Now I come to a dirt driveway sloping down the hill on my right. It is our driveway, marked with a little wooden sign which reads, Sarah laughs. I stand at the head of it, but I don't go down. Below is the lodge. It's all logs and added on wings, with a deck jutting out behind. Fourteen rooms in all, a ridiculous number of rooms. It should look ugly and awkward, but somehow it does not. There is a brave dowager quality to Sarah, the look of a lady pressing resolutely on toward her hundredth year, still taking pretty good strides in spite of our arthritic hips and, glimp and gimpy old knees. The central section is the oldest, dating back to 1900 or so. Other sections were added in the 30s, 40s, and 60s. Once it was a hunting lodge. For a brief period in the early 70s, it was a home to a small commune of transcendental hippies. These were lease or rental deals. The owners from the late 40s until 1984 were the Hingermans, Darren and Marie, then Marie alone when Darren died in 1971. The only visible addition from our period of ownership is a tiny DSS dish mounted on the central roof peak. That was Joanna's idea, and she never really got a chance to enjoy it. Beyond the house, the lake glimmers in the afterglow of sunset. The driveway I see is carpeted with brown pine needles and littered with fallen branches. The bushes, which grow on either side of it, have run wild, reaching out to one another like lovers across the narrowed gap which separates them. If you brought a car down here, the branches would scrape and squeal unpleasantly against its sides. Below, I see there's moss growing on the logs of the main house, and three large sunflowers with faces like searchlights have grown up through the boards of the little driveway side stoop. The overall feeling is not neglect, exactly, but forgottenness. There is a breath of breeze, and its coldness on my skin makes me realize that I have been sweating. I can smell pine, a smell which is both sour and clean at the same time, and the faint but somehow tremendous smell of the lake. Dark Score is one of the cleanest, deepest lakes in Maine. It was bigger until the late 30s, Marie Hingerman told us. That was when Western Maine Electric, working hand-in-hand hand with the mills and paper operations around Rumford, had gotten state approval to dam the Jessa River. Marie also showed us some charming photographs of white-frocked ladies and vested gentlemen in canoes. These snaps were from the time of the First World War, she said, and pointed to one of these young women, frozen forever on the rim of the Jazz Age with a dripping paddle upraised. That's my mother, she said, and the man she's threatening with the paddle is my father. Loons crying and their voices like loss. Now I can see Venus in the darkening scar. Sorry, darkening sky. Starlight, star bright. Wish I may, wish I might, in these dreams, I always wish for Joanna. With my wish made, I try to walk down the driveway. Of course I do. It's my house, isn't it? Where else would I go but my house? 
Now that it's getting dark, and now that the stealthy rustle in the woods seems both closer and somehow more purposeful, where else can I go? It's dark, and it will be frightening to go into that dark place alone. Suppose Sarah represents having been left along so alone. I suppose that she's angry, but I must. If the electricity's off, I'll light one of the hurricane lamps and that we keep in the kitchen cabinet. And then it goes on from there. Now, Mike goes on about his life, can't get out of his writer's block, and continues to dream of Sarah laughs. Then one day when he's about town, he encounters Ralph, star of 1994's Insomnia. During their conversation, King slips in Ralph's Insomnia just to point unaware readers towards a title that they might recognize. We're 70 pages into the novel when Mike starts the process of heading to Sarah Laughs, and though I wouldn't call the dreams at this point supernatural, the haunting tone is written so well that it's mesmerizing. When Mike gets to Sarah Laughs, he's understandably nervous after all of the dreams that he's had. When he arrives, King nails the scene on page 78. Just how scared was I as I approached Sarah Laughs? I don't remember. I suspect that fright like pain is one of those things that slip our minds once they have passed. What I do remember is a feeling I'd had before when I was down here, especially when I was walking this road by myself. It was a sense that reality was thin. I think that it is thin, you know. Thin as a lake ice after a thaw and we fill our lives with noise and light and motion to hide that thinness from ourselves. But in places like Lane 42, you find that all the smoke and mirrors have been removed. What's left is the sound of crickets and the sight of green leaves darkening towards black, branches that make shapes like faces, the sound of your heart in your chest, the beat of blood against the back of your eyes, and the look of the sky as the day's blue blood runs out of its cheek. What comes in when daylight leaves is a kind of certainty that beneath the skin there is a secret, some mystery both black and bright. You feel this mystery in every breath, you see it in every shadow, you expect to plunge into it at every turn of a step. It is here. You slip across it on a kind of breathless curve like a skater turning for home. I mean, that is a great description, uh, one that actually has payoff in the Dark Tower series, but I'll get to that later. Um, but otherwise, it's a beautiful scene, culminating with Mike looking up at the deepening sky and spotting the first star to blink in the night and asking it for help. Mike continues to test reality around him, anticipating the moment where his dream comes true and his dead wife comes rushing at him from the shadows. This, of course, has not happened, but King has effectively placed us in Mike's perspective. We're in his head, so the anxiety is unbearable. When he does enter Sarah Laughs, he isn't attacked by a ghost, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't encounter a ghost. As soon as he enters, in the darkness, he hears the crying sobs of a child. Now, this isn't a zombie lurching from the darkness. This is not a vampire or some clown monster. It's a child's cry. It's just a sound that you shouldn't hear in the darkness of your own home. It's not a horrific moment, but it is a terrifying one. It's something straight out of a gothic ghost story. In other works, 
He'd written of haunted houses, the Marston House, the Overlook, the Dutch Hill House, the House on Nybold Street. In the review of each respective novel, I explained that each of these houses is not a haunted house, but a fundamentally evil house. I made the point to make that distinction because when we arrive at Sarah Laughs, this is a haunted house. It operates differently than the others. And while there's ghosts and a sense of danger, it doesn't come with the thorough wrongness of the evil houses. But still, King likes to use the opportunity to talk about the nature of hauntings and houses, um, which he gets to on um, the bottom of page 89. I think houses live their own lives along a time stream that's different from the ones upon which their owners float, one that's slower. In a house, especially an old one, the past is closer. In my life, Joanna had been dead nearly four years, but to Sarah, she was much nearer than that. It wasn't until I was actually inside, with all of the lights on and the flash returned to its spot on the bookshelf, that I realized how much I had been dreading my arrival, of having my grief reawakened by signs of Joanna's interpreted life. A book with a corner turned down on the table at one end of the sofa, where Joe had liked to recline in her nightgown, reading and eating plums, the cardboard canister of Quaker oats, which was all she ever wanted for breakfast, on a shelf in the pantry, her old green robe hung on the back of the bathroom door in the south wing, which Bill Dean still called the new wing, although it had been built before we ever saw Sarah laughs. At just under 100 pages, Mike finally interacts with someone in a scene designed for us to stick through. It's not an anecdote or a flashback from Mike's perspective. It's still in Mike's perspective, but this scene feels different because it's going somewhere. There's a purpose to it, and that purpose is to introduce us to Maddie and Kyra. With their inclusion, the novel just came to life. And this isn't to say that the novel had been devoid of it leading up to this, but there had been a focus on death. The scene comes with a little flavor of the supernatural, as the second Mike hears Kyra's name, his mouth fills with what feels like water. Mike and Maddie have a cute yet awkward encounter where he accidentally cops a feel, but it's clear that the two have a connection, and the reader should expect some sort of supernatural explanation for the relationship between her daughter's name and the name of Joe and Mike's daughter, what it would have been. Later that night, while Castle Rock fireworks explode over the lake, Mike gets a call from Maxwell DeVore, our villain of the piece, who's calling in concern, so he says, for his granddaughter. And King tells us how we should feel about him with the following line, You're scared of this guy, aren't you? Maybe you're right to be scared. A man who can get angry whenever he wants at whoever he wants. That's a man who can be dangerous. Devore is certainly aggressive in our first encounter, and now Mike is stuck between the computer baron and the young mother. Later, King gives us more detail about Sarah Tidwell, the inspiration for Sarah Laughs. King weaves in, in without hammering us over the head with it. Sarah Tidwell will play a much larger role in the book, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. For all we know, the descriptions of the blues artist could just be another well-realized detail to give the rich description more dimension. 
Later, while in town, Mike realizes how many people seem to be paying attention to Maddie DeVore's business, and then, more frighteningly, when he returns back to Sarah Laughs and plays the tape recorder that he'd been using to try and pick up ghost sounds, he hears the ghostly whisper of someone saying, Oh, Mike. This, combined with the fact that the refrigerator magnets had been rearranged while he's gone, continues to propel the haunting tone forward. Now, I just used the word frighteningly, and that's not the right adverb. Because what's occurring here isn't frightening. It's unsettling. But it's not as if the recording said, get out, or some other threat. It wasn't as if the magnets on the fridge were rearranged to spell red rum. There's no sense of danger here. Rather, it's just spooky. We know that King can do horror, but this is different. This is spooky. This is why people pay money to visit supposedly haunted hotels or houses. They want this type of non-threatening ghost experience. It's going to creep them out, but they want to be creeped out. There's a safety here. The fright comes from bumping against the inexplicable, but the inexplicable isn't out for your blood or soul. King is still working within his parameters, but he's approached the subject matter from a new angle. Anyway, back to the plot. When Bill, his caretaker, arrives back in town, Mike is finally able to talk to someone about Maddie that he trusts. From there, it's confirmed that she's a stigma within the town, due to her being in the crosshairs of the powerful Maxwell DeVore, who wants custody of Kyra. Through Bill, King is able to build up the danger of Max DeVore, who is described as villainous Howard Hughes. He relates a Citizen Kane-esque story of how a young Maxwell DeVore wanted to sled so badly he broke into a neighbor's shed to get it and didn't mind bleeding all the way down the hill. The image of a young Max DeVore bleeding as he sleds down with glee um, down the moonlit hill is a powerful image and does wonders in establishing him as a petulant child. Even though he's a wizened old man, he's still that petulant child. We learn now of the story of Maddie and how she had fallen in love with Max, with Max DeVore's younger son Lance, and how Max owns large swaths of unincorporated forests throughout Maine. We learn of Lance's death and how Max had returned to TR-90 for his funeral and has stuck around since while he attempts to take custody of Kyra. We learn of his personal assistant Rod Jett Whitmore, the frighteningly witchy woman that Mike had spotted earlier. Later, when Mike goes in search of the plastic owls that Joe had ordered before she died in the cellar, he has another run-in with the ghost. The ghost doesn't come rushing out of the darkness with malicious intent. It simply communicates with him by thumping against the beams of the cellar. It's a hair-raising scene, probably because it's something that we can imagine happening to us all. Have you ever been in a dark basement and convinced yourself that you weren't alone? Well, King takes it one step further by having the main character prove that by communicating. But just because he communicates with the ghost doesn't mean that it isn't going to give him, or us, the heebie-jeebies. He's able to learn that the ghost isn't um, just Joe, and that he isn't... Sorry. He's able to learn that the ghost is but isn't Joe, and that he is but isn't in danger. When he returns upstairs, he finds the magnetic lettering on the fridge has been rearranged to spell hello. Mike is then served with papers to appear in order in court to reveal what he knows about Maddie in regards to the safety and well-being of Kyra. King captures the oilness of Castle County Deputy and Mike's sense of being interfered with. He returns inside to find that the message has been changed from hello 
to help her. Mike takes the ghost's advice and calls a lawyer in order to provide some legal support of the young widow. King then gives us a little more information on Sarah Tidwell, who has been one of the 40 black people who had settled in the area at the turn of the century. Mike has dinner with Maddie and Kyra. He settles into a warm relationship with both of them right away, and during this conversation, she lets him know about her own hauntings lately. And with this, King establishes that the ghosts are not limited to just Sarah Laughs. During this conversation, she lets him know that DeVore had offered to purchase Kyra from her for over $6 million. When you juxtapose this with the fact that she's living in a trailer and barely making ends meet, it shows the resiliency of her strength. The description of the decrepit old man meeting his granddaughter for the first time is striking. I could see it, except not in color, not in an image like a photograph. I saw it as a woodcut. Just one more harsh illustration from Grimm's fairy tales. The little girl looks up wide-eyed at the rich old man, once a boy who went triumphantly sledding on a stolen sled, now at the other end of his life, and just one more bag of bones. In my imagination, sorry, in my imagining, Kai was wearing a hooded jacket, and DeVore's grandpa mask was slightly askew allowing me to see the tufted wolf pelt beneath. What big eyes you have, Grandpa. What a big nose you have, Grandpa. What big teeth you have, too. King then delivers another mystery. What was Joe doing in TR-90 in the summer of 94, and who was the man she was with? This prompts a haunting sexual nightmare in which Mike partners with Joe, Maddie, and Sarah Tidwell herself, the scenes blurring in and out of each other, Mike never knowing if anything is real or just a dream. And even when he awakens, we still aren't sure. Though Mike and Maddie technically haven't gotten together, her presence in his life has awoken him. Having been lost in a sad dream these past four years, Maddie, along with Kyra, have brought life back to him so much that he's actually excited at having to pay over $70,000 to do battle with the billionaire. It all clicks when he discovers that he can write again, and the truth hits him hard at the bottom of page uh, 236 into 237. I could hear many boats out on the lake this afternoon to make nude bathing an option. I pulled on my suit, slung a towel over my shoulders, and started down the path, the one which had been lined with glowing paper lanterns in my dream, to wash off the sweat of my nightmares and my unexpected morning's labors. There are 23 railroad tie steps between Sarah and the lake. I had gone down only four or five before the enormity of what had just happened hit me. My mouth began to tremble. The colors of the trees and the sky mixed together as my eyes teared up. The sound began to come out of me, kind of muffled groaning. The strength ran out of my legs and I sat down hard on a railroad tie. For a moment I thought it was over, mostly just a false alarm, and then I began to cry. I stuffed one end of the towel in my mouth during the worst of it. Afraid the boaters on the lake heard the sounds coming out of me. They think someone up here was being murdered. I cried in grief for the empty years I had spent without Joe, without friends, and without my work. I cried in gratitude because those workless years seemed to be over. It was too early to tell for sure. One swallow doesn't make a summer, and eight pages of hard copy don't make a career recitation. But I thought it really might be so, and I cried out of fear as well as we do when some awful experience is finally over or when some terrible accident has been narrowly averted. 
I cried because I suddenly realized that I had been walking a white line ever since Joe died, walking straight down the middle of the road. By some miracle, I had been carried out of harm's way. I had no idea who had done the carrying, but that was all right. It was a question that could wait for another day. I cried it all out of me, and I went down to the lake and waded in. The cool water felt more good on my overheated body. It felt like a resurrection. Mike then shows up to the deposition, and his face-off against DeVore's rep is a great battle in which Mike comes out on top when he calls the rep's bluff about the taped phone recording from the 4th of July. After a brief, sorry, after a debriefing with Maddie and their lawyer, Mike comes home to a great jump scare as the ghost unexpectedly starts screaming. It's not hard to imagine this working wonders on the big screen. Which isn't surprising because that moment of silence followed by a burst of frightening sound is something that made the producers of Paranormal Activity a lot of money. This, combined with a taste of lake water in his mouth and the fridge manic, uh, magnet spelling, I'm Drown, we're starting to get a clearer picture of what's going on here. Later, Mike has an unfortunate conversation with the good Bill Dean, who at this point doesn't seem so good. When Mike asks him of the past, Bill isn't as forthcoming as we thought that he might be, and his dismissal of Sarah Tildwell and family and friends reveal a racist streak. The conversation between the two men is very tense, and when Mike point-blank asks him if Sarah Laughs is haunted, Bill matter-of-factly says, Sarah Laughs has always been haunted, Mike. You stirred him up. Perhaps you should go back to Darren and let him settle. That might be the best thing. He paused, as if replaying this last to see if he agreed with it, then nodded. He nodded as slowly as he had turned. I yep, that might be the best idea. Mike continues to investigate the goings-on of Joe during the last year of her life to determine whether or not she had been having an affair and learns that she had quit the boards on which she had served. He's convinced that the times she said that she had gone to meetings, she had been coming to Sarah Laughs. Now, the question is why? At this point, we have the mystery of what's going to happen to Maddie and Kyra, the mystery of the haunting at Sarah Laughs, and the mystery of Joe's secret life. The first two mysteries are the mysteries that are probably the ones that are more interesting to the Stephen King reader that picked up the book expecting to be scared out of his or her pants. But make no mistake, it's the third mystery that's the most important one to both the story and Mike as a character. Mike returns to Sarah Laughs and has a powerful supernatural experience in which he experiences drowning again, and this time witnesses the drowning through the eyes of a child, watching himself drown on dry land as Mike. First, he is still reeling from the conversation with Bill, and then he's thrown through the loop by the overpowering supernatural presence, and at his most vulnerable, he's come upon by Maxwell DeVore himself. And this is the only confrontation that Max and Mike are going to have, and it's weird. It isn't apocalyptic, but King manages to demonstrate the raw power of this frail old man. Plus, it's a, un it's a completely unexpected scene because of how Mike completely gets manhandled by the 85-year-old wheelchair-bound bully and his 70-something-year-old assistant. She punches him. He kicks him. I'm sorry. She punches him. He whacks him with the cane. You would think that by sheer age, Mike would have the advantage, but King dismisses that in this scene. 
He's then tossed into the water, and trudges, as he trudges his way back to shore, Devor keeps the pace, mocking him, and then Rajet Whitmore starts throwing rocks at him. Again, Mike is being completely dismantled by the two elderly creeps, and as ridiculous as it sounds, they nearly kill him when he's brained by a rock and almost drowns because of it. This is a great scene to make Devor a monster. We'd known that he was already, but his threat was limited to a supporting character. King knows that in order for the conflict to really pop, Devor needs to be a threat to our protag protagonist, and the scene does this in spades. He saved, he saved only when the ghost of his wife gives him strength to paddle to the safety of the raft, beyond the range of Whitmore's throw. Later that night, once Mike gets back to Sarah Laughs, Mike realizes that he can't go to the police because of how the media will perceive his attack. The attack and the inner conflict that follows sheds a light on an interesting and disturbing aspect of society and is in keeping with Maddie's situation. In both cases, they are the victim, and the victim is being terrorized by a monster who is above the law and uses it to get what he wants. Two events then occur. Max offers a deal. If Mike accepts it to stop, I'm sorry, if Mike accepts to stop asking questions about Devor, then Devor will agree to leave Maddie alone. Then the next day, Mike finds out that Devor has killed himself. Mike then has a supernatural encounter when the letters of his fridge spell Carla Dean. He then realizes that there are at least three entities in Sarah Laughs. Joe, the crying boy, and a third entity that is not as benevolent as the other two, possibly harmful. Later, Mike has lunch with Kyra and Maddie, and Maddie drops the bomb that something has been spelling words on the refrigerator using the magnetic letters that Mike had given them. Here's a part that strains credulity. Mike has functioned well within this ghost story. His choices have been logical. He hasn't been outwardly he hasn't outwardly denied the existence of ghosts, and when confronted with the supernatural, he's explored all possibilities, even going so far as to attempt to communicate with the ghosts, which he feels he shares his summer home with. Yet here, when the closest person he currently has in his life confirms that she too is experiencing this paranormal phenomenon, he doesn't mention his own experience. It just doesn't ring true to me. King opts instead, and understandably so, to increase the sexual tension between the two. Though they may not discuss the supernatural proceedings, they discuss the very natural proceeding of their attraction to one another. When Mike gets home, he calls Joe's brother and realizes that he's the man that had been spotted with Joe uh, in TR during the baseball game. And then Frank then says that Joe had been afraid of Sarah Laughs, calling it dangerous. Mike has another dream, this one revealing more about Sarah Tidwell, when King writes, There is a parodic coldness about this gesture, and an emptiness too, a sadness, yet I felt no compassion for her. It was as if the heart had been burned out of her, and the sadness which remained was just another ghost. The memory of love haunting the bones of hate, and how her laughing teeth leered. She raised her arms over her head, and this time shook it all the way down, as if reading my thoughts and mocking them. Just like jelly on a plate, as some other old song of the time has it, her shadow wavered on the canvas backdrop, 
which was a painting of Freiburg. And as I looked at it, I realized I had found the shape from my Manderly dreams. It was Sarah. Sarah was the shape and always had been. <clears throat> During the dream, he spots the grandparents of many of the TR-90 citizens. And Sarah even speaks to Mike, uh, warning him to stay out of her way so she can finish her business. And when he awakens, the nightmare is not over. As we see on page um, 373. I sat on the bed, thought about dictating what I had just experienced into the memo scriber, then flopped back on the pillows instead. I was too tired. Thunder rumbled. I closed my eyes, began to drift away, and then a scream ripped through the house. It was as sharp as the neck of a broken bottle. I sat up with a yell clutching at my chest. It was Joe. I had never heard her scream like that in our life together, but I knew who it was just the same. Stop hurting her, I shouted into the darkness. Whoever you are, stop hurting her. She screamed again, as if something with a knife, clamp, or hot poker took a malicious delight in disobeying me. It seemed to come from a distance this time, and her third scream, while just as agonized as the first two, was further away still. They were diminishing as the little boy's sobbing had diminished. A fourth scream floated out of the dark, and then Sarah was silent. Breathless, the house breathed all around me, alive in the heat, aware in the faint sound of dawn thunder. Mike and Bill have it out again, this time with the reader's understanding that Bill is just 100% a bad guy. Capital B, capital G. And just to remind us, King has him utter the N-word to reinforce this. During their argument, Mike confronts him on the past, which Bill warns him to stay away from, and Mike prods him about Joe's death, that it wasn't a stroke. He's convinced that something had followed her to Derry from the TR. Mike receives a call from his housekeeper who tells him that she has to quit because something is mad at her and she might have an accident, which is what had occurred to Royce Merrill. And then whatever cele celebratory sensation they might have with the death of DeVore comes crashing down. Maddie and Mike, along with their lawyers and private investigator, have a party at Maddie's trailer. King weaves the descriptions of the building storm clouds and the rumbling thunder with the characters having fun and each other to rain them in um, to enjoy it while it lasts. King continues to tease the upcoming tragedy with Kyra's sleepy requests to Mike to take care of her, and King makes it worse by almost having the union of Mike and Maddie come true. Just as they're about to give in to each other, two lost and wounded souls having found one another, he rips it away from them. The drive-by that takes Maddie's life is unexpected, even if King had foreshadowed her death. I know that when I first read it, I didn't expect it to come so quick and didn't expect a death by natural causes. Natural in the sense that it was caused by human interference. Natural as opposed to supernatural. The death of Maddie is only the beginning of the end, as the townsfolk gang up to come for Kyra, and Sarah Tidwell whips up a supernatural storm to slow down Mike, and to add to the mood, of course. Mike manages to get Kyra to Sarah laughs, and with the storm raging outside, the ghosts have begun to come out and play. Mike then goes into a trance. King establishes it well, allowing us to fall under the spell of Sarah Tidwell until it comes to the point where we realize that he's about to kill Kyra. And then clarity breaks through, enough for him to unlock 
the code of 19 down. I'm pausing right here. I'm pausing everyone that knows that number. Um, so he... And then Clarity breaks through enough for him to unlock the code of 19 down that he'd been trying to figure out for a few hundred pages. It's a cool bit of writing what happens next. Mike goes to his manuscripts, flips to page 19, and when he plucks the first letter off of each line on the way down the page for 19 lines, it spells Owls Under Studio. It's a crazy ending. It's not necessarily original. I think that it's something that you've seen out of hundreds of ghost stories before. The protagonist races to undercover the clue or the artifact while the evil spirits try to stop him. The fabric of time is thin, and Mike slips into the past to witness the death of Carla Dean, Bill's wife. In a beautifully written but horrendous scene, Mike watches as Carla is drowned by her father while a forest fire rages all around the lake. And when he snaps back into the present, Mike unravels the mystery of it all and how he's related to the families that have begun so many years before. In the past, Mike witnesses the awful death of Sarah Tidwell and her son while in the present, Joe does battle with a superpowered ghost Sarah as Mike unearths and dissolves the bones. Just when we think that he's finished, he returns to Sarah Laughs to discover that Kyra had been abducted by Rajet Whitmore. A little bit later, everything is finished. The ghost of Maddie comes up from the depths. Um, we take out Rajat Whitmore, and the cycle is broken. He can move on with his life. He goes through the process of trying to heal himself and adopt um, Kai in the process. All right, guys, what I want to do now, I want to talk about Mike, because he's our guy for this book, so... Um, let, let's talk about what, what he means here. So despite the fact that the first-person perspective can tell us so much about a person, it can also hinder how much we really know about them. What if the narrator is bland or a liar? Thankfully, King manages to make Mike an actual character. And Joe's death is never just a plot point. It's a shroud that hangs over him for the entire novel. It's a part of him. Furthermore, we get great little insights about him with personal details like the one on page 11, I believe. So his brother-in-law is talking to him and wants him to know that he can always, um, you know, just if, he ever need, if they ever needs help, he just needs to ask. Okay, I said, respecting and appreciating the offer, also knowing I would do no such thing. I don't call people for help. It's not because of the way I was raised. At least I don't think so. It's the way I was made. Joanna once said if I was drowning at Darkscore Lake, where we have a summer home, I would die silently 50 feet out from the public beach rather than yell for help. It's not a question of love or affection. I can give those and I can take them. I feel pain like anyone else. I need to be touched and be touched. I need to touch and be touched. But if someone asks me, are you all right? I can't answer no. I can't say help me. In restaurants, um, this this um, description here just makes me think that in restaurants, most choking incidents, I read this somewhere, take place inside of the restrooms because people don't want to make a scene, right? So if they're choking on something, a lot of people just get up and walk into a restroom rather than standing up 
in the middle of a restaurant, clutching their necks, wanting to be saved. So a description, this particular description about him, it feels very truthful. Through Mike, King explores the process of writing. Again. It's something that he has done before with his characters, whether it be Ben Mears in Salem's Lot, Jack Torrance in The Shining, Paul Sheldon in Misery, Thad Beaumont in The Dark Half, Mort Rainey in Secret Window, Secret Garden, Paul Edgecombe talks about it in The Green Mile, Bill Denbro does it in It, Jim Gardner and Bobby Anderson do it in The Tommyknockers. Here we get um, very much a King analog, as we sometimes do, as Mike struggles financially with Joe by his side right before his novels begin to take off. Similar to the story of Stephen King and Tabby, young, in love, him working as an English teacher, writing Carrie in the evenings, Mike working as a reporter, writing Big Two in the evenings. Much like Tabby, Joe is his muse, his cheerleader, and his critic to snap him out of it when he gets too self-indulgent, as Mike does when he worries if he's ever going to be taken seriously as an artist. Through Mike, King is able to comment on so many little everyday observations. It allows King to channel his inner philosopher. Uh, one instance that stands out is the dynamic of power through the perspective of men and women in regards to sex. On pages um, 228 to 229. Now, it isn't essential to the plot, but it is interesting food for thought and gives us good insight into Mike's character. Or when he returns to Sarah Laughs after a football game, we get some good insight into his character. I stayed another inning, but by then the game was getting drunk. Divorce still hadn't shown, and I went back home the way I had come. I met one fisherman standing along out on the rock and two young people strolling along the street towards Warrington's, their hands linked. They said hi, and I hide them back. I felt lonely and content at the same time. I believe that that's a rare kind of happiness. After Mike is nearly murdered by DeVore and Whitmore, King is able to comment upon the cannibalistic nature between celebrities and the consumer. In 1998, the date of publication, um, which wasn't a long time ago, uh, but it's one that is still eons away from the level of scrutiny that social media and Twitter have done for today's day and age. With that said, what King wrote in 98 is just as relevant then as it is today. More relevant today, I'd say, um, on page 304. I'm not a sissy about the sometimes whimsical, sometimes hateful attention of the press, but I'm wary, as I would be around a bad-tempered, fur-bearing mammal. Mammal. America has turned the people who entertain it into weird high-class whores, and the media jeers at any celeb who dares complain about his or her treatment. Quit your bitchin', cry the newspapers and the TV gossip shows. The tone is of mingled triumph and indignation. Sonny! Sonny! No. Thank you. Did you really think we paid you the big bucks just to sing a song or swing a Louisville slugger? Wrong. We pay so we can be amused when you do it well, whatever it happens to be in your particular case, also because it's gratifying when you F up. The truth is your supplies. If you cease to be amusing, we can always kill you and eat you. They can't really eat you, of course. They can print pictures of you with your shirt off and say you're running too fat. They can talk about how much you drink or how many pills you take or snicker about the night you pulled some starlet under your lap at Spago and tried to stick your tongue in her ear, but they can't really eat you. 
So it wasn't the thought of the Post calling me a crybaby or being part of Jay Leno's opening monologue that made me put the phone down. It was the realization that I had no proof. No one had seen us. And I realized finding an alibi for himself and his personal assistant would be the easiest thing in the world for Max Devore. Later, Mike will muse on the nature of small towns on page um, 383. There is such a thing as town consciousness. Anyone who doubts it has never been to a New England town meeting. When there's consciousness, is there not likely to be subconscious? And if Kyra and I were doing the old mind meld thing, could not other people in the TR-90 also be doing it? Perhaps even without knowing it? We all shared the same air and land. We shared the lake and the aquifer, which lay below everything, buried water, tasting of rock and minerals. We shared the street as well, that place where good pups and vile dogs could walk side by side. And then we have um, his examination on parties, on Stephen King's examination of parties that he gives us through Mike. Um, in the cities, parties begin with greetings at the door, gathered in coats and those particular little air kisses. When exactly did that social oddity begin? In the country, they begin with chores. You fetch, you carry, you hunt for stuff like barbecue tongs and oven mitts. The hostess drafts a couple of men to move the picnic table, then decides it was actually better where it was and asks them to put it back. And at some point, you discover that you're having fun. You know, so just like little observations like that just make this book feel so rich. You know, it just makes it feel so, like I said before earlier in the review, just authentic. It's a very authentic feeling novel. Now I want to talk about The Outsider. When Mike watches Maddie and Kyra cry and apologize to each other when they first meet, King writes, still crying, she hugged the older girl tight, laying her head against the side of Maddie's neck. Her baseball cap fell off. I picked it up beginning to feel very much like an outsider here. Now, throughout the entire novel, Mike is the outsider. He's not quite a local, but he isn't a stranger. He's accepted by the residents, but he'll never be let in on the deep, dark secrets of TR-90. In the conversations with Mrs. M and Bill Dean, this becomes absolutely clear, especially the conversation he has with Bill when Bill tells him, in other words, that he's representing the town when he tells Mike to choose the status quo of TR-90 life over Maddie. It's the ever-present conflict between an established group, the town of TR-90, and the outside. After Mike decides to continue to investigate Devor and TR-90's past, he officially becomes the outsider, enemy number one in the eyes of the residents. Sarah Tidwell and her people were considered outsiders by the then-residents of TR-90 and are still considered outsiders today. With Joe's death, Mike becomes an outsider to the wife he had loved, and vice versa. Because so much of what the life that she was living, it was just a big question, and he doubted certain aspects of the, the truth of that love. Everything that occurs in this novel is because of the concept of the outsider. Sarah Tidwell is raped because she's black, a physical feature that deems her to be, in the eyes of the establishment, an outsider. 
Over the centuries, the ghost of this outsider punishes the establishment for her death, reminding them what happens when you draw lines in the sand. And in the conclusion of the novel, when her vengeful spirit tries to stop Mike, the ghost of Joe tells Mike that, she ha that he has to hurry because she's let one of the outsiders in. Capitalized. Later, Mike gives an answer when it will return. It always does, I said, at the risk of sounding pompous. The outsider eventually comes back for all of this, doesn't it? Because we're all bag of bones. And the outsider, Frank, the outsider wants what's in the bag. Um, okay, guys. So now I just want to go over the Stephen King-isms. Uh, the first of which is the writer as protagonist, which we've seen before from, like I said, Bill Denbro, Jack Torrance, Jim Gardner, Bobby Anderson, uh, the list goes on. Number two, a character remembering their loved one by eating their chocolate. When Mike eats his wife's chocolate after she died and he bursts into tears, it's a similar scene to David Carver licking the leftover chocolate in the Milky Way when his friend Brian is in the hospital about to die in the pages of Desperation. Number three is the loss of a family member. So we have seen this before in many, many um, works. Insomnia, Revival, Pet Cemetery, Firestarter, Cujo. Number four is the dream. It's in every single Stephen King work, and that's the prophetic or nightmare dream. So Mike Noonan is the, the latest victim of this dream. Number five is kind of, it's almost 4A, uh, but an injury in a dream translating to an injury in real life. Mike gets a cut in a dream and awakens to find the cut, proving that it was more than a dream. We've seen this before in Pet Cemetery and Rose Matter. Number six, fabric between worlds is thin. At one point, Mike thinks that the reality of Sarah Laughs is thin, and we've seen that again and again. In fact, there's a word for it, and that word is thinny, which we just experienced in Wizarding Glass. Race. Stephen King has always been a champion of racial equality, which we have seen um, through all of his works. Number eight is music. Uh, not only is King musing on racial tensions here, but he's also reflecting on the lasting power of music. Sarah Laughs is a blues musician, and King name drops Blind Lemon Jefferson and Robert Johnson. He explores the impact of music, which makes sense. He's always incorporated music into his stories to great effect. Some of his characters have been musicians, like Larry Underwood had been in The Stand and Jamie in Revival. By the way that music is treated here, as a plot point that allows King to lift it up to the light and examine it closely, um, it's very much in line with what he does with the character of Jamie. Number nine, the car. Mike meets Kyra and Maddie when he spots Kyra in the road. And at the deposition posits that she very easily could have been hit by a car. All right, guys. Um, uh, so this was published in September of 98. Uh, in June of 1999, Stephen King is going, is going, to, going, to, wind, going to wind up, wind up get, getting hit by a car, um, which will just, at that time, it's going to make all of the scenes with cars in his novels take on a very strange aspect, as if he has known about this on some level and has been trying to... I don't know, warn himself. Uh, this will actually be discussed um, as a major plot point and thematic point 
in an upcoming series of novels, uh, which I cannot wait to get to. Uh, but the car and the danger of a car is something that King has written about as far back in Carrie, when Carrie murdered her primary bullies by crashing their car. Number 10 is the fancy wheelchair. Max DeVore's tricked-out wheelchair is not the first to be seen in a Stephen King work. The first, of course, was in the adaptation of Cycle of the Werewolf, the Corey Haim-starring vehicle, Silver Bullet. Number 11 is Dear Heart, and I've never mentioned this Kingism before, but I should have a long time ago. This is King's go-to term of affection between loved ones, and I've never heard it ever used in real life, only in the pages of... Uh, a Stephen King novel. Number 12, 19. Now, I already, made a pl I already made a point to mention the number 19 in this review, but here's the deal. This number features prominently in the pages of The Dark Tower. It's a reference to the age that King was when he began writing The Gunslinger, and it's the date in which he was hit by the car in real life in June of 99. About eight months before that crash, he introduces the world to 19 in the pages of Bag of Bones, as it's one of the clues that the ghosts are leaving for Mike. And number 13 is baseball. Uh, Maddie fell in love with Lance DeVore at the local softball game, and this is King allowing himself to, to write about his his favorite sport in the whole wide world, baseball. It's it's very, very famously known that King is a huge Red Sox fan. And now it's time for our Easter eggs. Dark Score Lake. Uh, Dark Score Lake was mentioned in Gerald's game. Number two is Dairy Maine, which was the setting of It, Insomnia, Fair Extension, Secret Window, Secret Garden. In my bonus episode in which I reviewed my experience with SK-Tours, I went into detail how during this tour, Derry, Maine, otherwise known as Bangor, Maine, comes to life. So when King describes Mike's neighborhood, if you take the tour, you know exactly where he's talking about. The bookstore, named here as Spread It Around, is based on a real-life bookstore owned by Stu, the SK Tour Guide. So when Mike says they do a very brisk business in my old paperbacks, it's King winking at the knowing audience. Number three is Ralph Roberts who is the star of Insomnia, and he makes an appearance here. It was great to see Ralph again. Number four is Joe Weiser. The, the kindly pharmacist from Insomnia makes an appearance here. Noonan gives us an update, telling us that he has since moved to Bangor. Number five is Bill Denbro. Mike Noonan references his peer, the star of It, Castle Rock. Castle Rock is mentioned here. Number seven is Royce Merrill. This is not the first Merrill that has popped up in a Stephen King book. The first was Ace, and the second was Reginald Pop Merrill. Number eight is Inside View. King references Inside View, the tabloid magazine first seen in the Dead Zone, later again seen in um, The Night Flyer, and referenced in a number of Stephen King works. Number 19 is the Mellow Tiger. This is the local Castle Rock dive bar. Number 10 is the Micmacs. When Mike speaks to his house cleaner about whether or not Sarah Laughs has had any ghosts, she gives a great response. Not that I've ever seen, she said, matter of fact, as an accountant. But my ma said there are plenty down here. She said the whole lake is haunted by the Micmacs that lived here until they was driven out by General Wing. 
She goes on to give more examples, but the mention of the Micmacs is enough to make even a casual King fan smile. The Micmacs, of course, were the Indian tribe responsible for the Micmac burial ground whose soil eventually turned sour as seen in Pet Cemetery. The Wendigo is mentioned as well, and King teases the greater mythology of the Micmacs with the boogeyman creature known as the Alama Lagusum. Number 11 is Shawshank. Jared DeVore, the forefather of Maxwell DeVore, mentions uh, Shawshank. And then we also have Juniper Hill. Mike is worried that he's gone crazy and is bound for Juniper Hill. Number 13 uh, is Norris Ridgwick. He is now the Castle Rock Sheriff who arrives after the events of the final evening. Number 14 is Paul... Um, Alan Pangborn and Polly Chalmers. Norris lets Mike and us know that they're doing well in New Hampshire. Number 15, this other character is mentioned and is not doing as well, and that's Thad Beaumont. He's mentioned here, um, who is another writer contemporary of Mike, and it is confirmed here that he has committed suicide. Number 16 is Bleak House. King mentions Dickens' novel Bleak House, which is referenced heavily in his upcoming Black House with Peter Straub. Now, I wonder at this point, the reason that this is an Easter egg um, rather than a Stephen Kingism is because I just wonder if at this point the two authors have begun collaborating. I don't know. Number seven, Bannerman. Um, there was a, a Nehemiah Bannerman who was the sheriff on TR90 during the time of Sarah Tidwell, and I just wonder if that was an ancestor to um, Sheriff, uh, sheriff Bannerman from Cujo and uh, the Dead Zone. And lastly, uh, Sarah Laughs and Kara Laughs. Sarah Laughs will be seen again known as Kara Laughs. Uh, it's not exactly Sarah Laughs and it's not on Dark Score Lake, but it's it's the twinner. We will see the twinner of Sarah Laughs. Like I said, it will be called Kara Laughs, and we will see it again in the pages of The Dark Tower, Book 7, The Dark Tower. All right, guys, so that is all that I have for now for Bag of Bones, and I apologize if I did not go into as much detail, um, but this was not a very plot-heavy novel. Um, King is always strong on his character work, and he typically goes, he, he typically works his characters through plot. So he's great with characters, he's great with plot. Here he really focused on two things, rather than characters and plot, he really focused on characters and tone. So it's something that just kind of needs to be experienced. I was going to say it needs to be experienced and not analyzed, but everything needs to be experienced and not analyzed. Uh, but it's a good one. It's a good, ponderous, musing um, look on on life and love and work and relationships and mourning and letting go and just everything. It's a pretty pretty heavy book, um, figuratively, not not literally. And uh, it, it's one that really, like I said earlier, forces you to slow down and, and just really really soak it in. So if you have not done so, if it's not one of the ones that has screened out for you to read. Uh, it's definitely worth your time. It's not going to be an edge-of-your-seat thriller. It's not one that's going to keep you up in the middle of the night out of terror. Um, but it is one that's going to make you appreciate everyone in your life. It's going to be one that just makes you think about some, some bigger things. 
um, in this world and your place within it. And that's ultimately what books are supposed to do. Okay, everyone, so that's all that I have. Uh, make sure you stick around next week as I review... Um, what am I reviewing? Oh! Storm of the Century. That's what I'm reviewing. Storm of the Century, the uh, 1999 ABC TV miniseries uh, that Stephen King wrote as a miniseries rather than writing it as a book to be uh, later adapted as a miniseries. He did wind up publishing uh, to correspond with the, the um, release of the miniseries published the, the, the manuscript that he wrote. I'm not going to be reviewing the, the, the shooting script. I am going to be reviewing the, the two or three part um, miniseries starring Tim Daly from Wings and Tom Fior uh, playing the, the villainous Andre Lenoge. So just give the man wants and he'll go away. So make sure that you stick around next week for that review. In the meantime, everyone, if you have not done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Track me down on Tumblr and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And if you haven't done so already, uh, head on over to iTunes, write a review, subscribe to iTunes. It's going to really help spread the word of the Stephen Kingcast. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. I'll see you all here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen